Hello, I'm Tristan Abbey, editor-at-large of the Elia Review of Books. This is episode 10 of the Elia Review podcast, and the second part of a two-part series featuring Dr. Glenn Van Brummeland, professor of mathematical sciences and dean of the Faculty of Natural and Applied Sciences at Trinity Western University in British Columbia. Last episode, Dr. Van Brummelen joined us to discuss The Mathematics of the Heavens and the Earth, The Early History of Trigonometry, published in 2009 by Princeton University Press. Today, he returns for the conclusion, focused on his most recent book, The Doctrine of Triangles, A History of Modern Trigonometry, published in 2021 by Princeton University Press. Dr. Van Brummelen, welcome back. Last time, we heard about the Greek Alexandrians, India, and the Islamic world. Shifting toward modern trigonometry, return to Trig's European heritage. What are one or two key points we need to know? Uh, well, again, you know, this is just such a great context for watching how cultures build and appropriate knowledge from other cultures. I mean, Europe didn't just suddenly come into existence one morning and say, hey, the Greeks were doing these interesting things. Let's pick up and take it further. In medieval and late medieval and early modern Europe, a lot of this material was inspired by especially Western Islam, Spain and Morocco. A lot of the astronomy and trigonometry came from there. And so it came also from a place of astronomy. The astronomers were the ones who were doing this, partly for the purpose of casting horoscopes for astrology. But in the late 16th century, so there's a very interesting change that happens. And there's a period from about 1580 to about 1610 or so where astronomers are writing trigonometry textbooks, but they're starting to think about using trigonometry for other purposes. So you'll find already in the early 1580s, they're starting to use trigonometry the way we do today by finding the height of a building. And then they start to extend it, say, well, maybe trigonometry could be used for surveying or maybe for architecture and so on. And so they were pushing this forward, hoping that the mathematical practitioners of the time would pick it up. That didn't really happen as much as the trigonometry textbook authors were excited about this. It didn't really happen until around the 1620s and 30s. And that had to do with the invention of logarithms. And logarithms were, I mean, it's hard to underestimate how important logarithms were, hard to overestimate. Logarithms made it possible for quantitative calculations to enter into the world of mathematical practitioners. So there was suddenly surveyors were using this, architects. In fact, we often have this trope that mathematics basically became integral to everyone's world through the birth of science and the scientific revolution. That's not entirely true. The story is quite a bit more complicated. And I would make the argument here that it wasn't so much science, but the trades where mathematics first started to enter ordinary everyday life. And this happened in the early 17th century with logarithms. And all of a sudden, navigators were using this, surveyors, ordinary people were using mathematics in order to learn about their world. Well, when I hear about merchant men and adventurers, I think about Marco Polo and the Silk Road. And that takes us very quickly to China. What's going on there as far as math goes? 
Oh my, how long have you got? That This was a difficult chapter to write because if you're going to write about China interacting with trigonometry, it takes place over basically 2,000 years and in very different ways at different times. China was more isolated from the West than a lot of the other cultures we've been talking about here. So there were different ways of thinking in China with respect to math. And what makes this really difficult is a lot of Western historians of math have really struggled to understand when we read an ancient or medieval Chinese text to understand what these mathematicians were thinking, as opposed to what it looks like we are seeing when we read these texts. So prior to the 16th century, there are parts of Chinese mathematics that you might interpret as trigonometry. But you have to be really careful because trigonometry is, is, you know, it's mostly a Western invention as long as you include these other cultures we've talked about already. So it's really difficult to say, yes, the Chinese had trigonometry or no, they didn't, because that's a question asked with Western eyes. So the first part of that chapter was difficult to wrestle with in order to try to preserve what the Chinese authors were actually thinking as well as I could. But then once the Jesuits come in in the 16th century and later, there was an input of Western-style trigonometry, and that led to a number of developments. There were some movements back and forth. Once the Chinese had Western trigonometry, there were a couple of different ways in which it worked. Some of these people tried to push it forward in the Western style, but others tried to incorporate Western trigonometry in an intellectual space that was more natural for their indigenous culture. Nevertheless, they were able to extend it in surprising ways. And very much like the Keralese mathematicians in India, they did a lot with infinite processes. And actually, with their work in trigonometry in the 19th century, came close to inventing calculus on their own before the borders were opened again and Western knowledge flooded in and put an end to that particular innovation. Well, it would be hard to get more innovative mathematically than Leonard Euler. And in your book, you talk quite a bit about the post-Euler age. What do we need to know about trigonometry and mathematics after Euler? Well, Euler is one of the major figures in what was called a shift from synthetic geometry to analytic geometry or basically from synthesis to analysis. So they're two very different styles of doing geometry and trigonometry. I mean, trigonometry is essentially a geometric subject. You draw triangles, you study them, you analyze their angles and their lengths and so on. Euler was a major figure in shifting the focus of mathematics in general towards analysis, towards algebra, equations, and numbers rather than geometry. And so this got taken to a point where, I mean, the mathematics we learn in school is really heavily influenced by that. When you make Cartesian axes, you draw a graph, you analyze the curves by analyzing the equations for the curves rather than geometrically looking at the curves themselves. That's just how we do things today. And this was taken to an extreme point where there was actually a movement by Lagrange to take spherical trigonometry and try to base it entirely on symbolic manipulation. No geometry whatsoever. And he was almost completely successful. 
All he needed was the spherical law of cosines. If you gave him that, he could derive everything known in spherical trigonometry simply using algebra and nothing else. And this is very powerful, right? This is how, this is basically the engine that science and technology use today in order to drive further discoveries. So I, you know, I miss the geometry, but you can't deny that our culture has been completely transformed by analysis. Well, that concludes our sweeping tour of mathematical history, beginning with the Alexandrian Greeks and the Indians and the Muslims and ending with the Europeans, Chinese and the moderns. I think it's fair to say that both of these books are mathematically rigorous. For the less mathematically inclined reader, they might find your other books interesting. The Very Short Introduction to Trigonometry and Heavenly Mathematics. Just two final questions. First, are there any scholars that have influenced your work in particular? Who do you read? Well, I mean, I'm reading all the time. There's lots of people that I read. One person I'm going to mention who you've I'm going to get obscure on you here. You've never heard of this person, Anton von Bronmio. He was more like predecessor. He wrote a two-volume history of trigonometry about 120 years ago in German. And he was part of a movement of historians of math, many of whom were German, who set up an incredibly rich foundation for the rest of us. Nowadays, history of mathematics is moving in a direction that takes us partly, not entirely away, that's not the right word, but to focus on historical and culturally sensitive issues, to try to, as I've been saying throughout this conversation, to try to embed mathematics within culture. But I think there's still a great deal of value in these 19th century German historians of math who did incredibly detailed and sophisticated work in setting up the foundation on which, without knowing it, we, all of us historians of mathematics, still rely. The other person I want to mention who anticipated a lot of the direction in which the history of math is going right now is Abdelhamid Sabra. Two of the points that he made, I think, are really important. You'll notice trigonometry, the subject is being transmitted from one culture to another over 2,000 years in this glorious mixture. But he doesn't appreciate, and I think he's right, he doesn't appreciate the word transmit. He prefers the word appropriate. So when, for instance, India took whatever it was they took from Greek mathematics, Greek trigonometry, they didn't just take Ptolemy or whoever it was, and all of a sudden Ptolemy's in India. They converted it, they wrestled and morphed it into something new that was more appropriate for their culture. And this is happening all the time. So Sabra made this point already uh, several decades ago, and it's been on my mind for all of my work. And the final question, what's your favorite novel? All right. Uh, you know, I'd have to say it would be Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace. I don't know if you know this book. I know of it. It's about a thousand pages long. It has a couple of hundred pages of footnotes and footnotes to footnotes. I mean, it's had some criticism, but the book is this. It's basically David Foster Wallace, this incredibly powerful mind asking, what can I do with a novel? How far can I push creativity? And it's it's not an easy read, but it turns out that the the narrative structure of the book is a ring. So that once you read through the entire novel and you get to the end, you can actually pick it up again at the beginning and keep reading. And it makes sense. Well, that's wild. it's just there's just such a sense of play in it. 
I'm also a fan of David Foster Wallace because although he was a novelist, he also wrote a book in the history of math on the history of infinity called Everything and More, which is great fun to read as well. Well, thanks so much, Dr. Van Bremelen. It's been a pleasure to chat. Thanks so much. It's been really nice. Thank you. This interview was conducted on July 13th, 2021. I'm Tristan Abbey with the ILEA Review of Books. Join us online at www.aleoreview.com. That's www.aleoreview.com.